This morning scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 1. During the rule of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abiah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. They were both righteous before God, blameless in their observance of all the Lord's commandments and regulations. They had no children because Elizabeth was unable to become pregnant, and they were both very old. One day, Zechariah was serving as a priest before God because his priestly division was on duty. Following the customs of priestly service, he was chosen by lottery to go into the Lord's sanctuary and burn incense. All the people who gathered to worship were praying outside during this hour of incense offering. An angel from the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw the angel, he was startled and overcome with fear. The angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will give birth to your son, and you must name him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many people will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the Lord's eyes. He must not drink wine and liquor. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before his birth. He will bring many Israelites back to the Lord their God. He will go forth before the Lord, equipped with the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of fathers back to their children, and he will turn the disobedient to righteous patterns of thinking. He will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How can I be sure of this? My wife and I are very old. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in God's presence. I was sent to speak to you and to bring this good news to you. Know this, what I have spoken will come true at the proper time. But because you didn't believe, you will remain silent, unable to speak until the day when these things happen. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they wondered why he was in the sanctuary for such a long time. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he gestured to them and couldn't speak. When he completed the days of his priestly service, he returned home. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. I love Christmas time. Anybody else? Like, I am crazy in love with the Christmas season. I'm the guy that can't wait for the radio station to start playing Christmas tunes in like mid-October. I'm the guy that is getting out the Christmas tree the second Reagan allows it, which is pretty early in the year because she is nuts about Christmas as well. I love the music. I love all the decorations. I love Christmas morning. I love the gift giving. I love the time in normal years of family gatherings. I love the food, but I also love Christmas movies. I'm a huge movie buff normally, and so you put movies and Christmas together, and I am there. I will watch the same movies year after year after year, as I'm sure many of you do. In fact, I'm curious, what are some of your like top three favorite Christmas movies? Uh, let's put that in the chat and start some fights. Or better yet, what's the movie that you can't stand? That'll really get the fights going. Anyways, one of my absolute favorites that I watch every year without fail is The Santa Claus. It's a mid-90s Christmas uh, movie, the Santa Claus with an E at the end. It's Tim Allen stars as this man named Scott Calvin. 
you see here at, towards the end of the movie, uh, where early on in the movie, he accidentally kills Santa on Christmas Eve, which is kind of a really dark place for the movie to start, but Disney plays it off for a laugh. And he discovers that the way the legalese works is that he is now the new Santa, which is really exciting for his son, um, but not so exciting for him because Scott Calvin has grown accustomed to living a life that is very centered around himself and his work. He's not the most present father. He doesn't really pay much attention to the other people in his life. Uh, he's divorced. Uh, his ex-wife, Laura, and her new partner, Neil, are very responsible adults, very present in the life of their son, Charlie, who for some reason the director told to give every line very whiny. Sorry, parents. I've never understood why the kid is so whiny in this movie. But Laura and Neil, uh, they're, they're so responsible. And I, I feel bad uh, the way the movie casts them in this kind of negative light because they act as any responsible adult should in this situation where you have someone who believes they are becoming Santa, right? That's not something that we should take lightly. They try to protect Charlie from this. Um, Laura and Neil to me represent what a lot of adults are. We've grown older in life and uh, we do become responsible and we live life based upon what's to be expected and not expected. You know, Neil's a psychiatrist. He, he likes to break things down and, and understand the minutia of the way things work. He likes to have explanations. He's a natural born skeptic. I can identify with that. I, I like them because they're the kind of adults that we see in so many Christmas movies. These movies that are grounded in magic and in belief and in hope, that word hope that we're talking about today. And towards the end of the movie, the same thing happens with Laura and Neil that happens with characters like them in other Christmas movies. They have that moment. They have that moment where that childlike wonder enters back in. That, that magic is, is taking root for the first time in a long time. And there's even this moment where Neil is looking at Scott Calvin as Santa, and his face changes. Here's a picture of it. And, and, and you can see that childlike wonder take hold. And he says, Santa? And Scott says, it's me, Neil. I, I love these movies, I think, because maybe there's times that I know I need to reconnect with that childlike wonder, that belief in, in magic, the magic of hope that this season brings. Now, it's not the Christmas season yet. In the Christian church, we're in the season we call Advent, even though in my house, trust me, it is Christmas explosion. But uh, this season in the church is a season of preparation, a season of waiting, as we prepare ourselves to receive the Christ child once again. And we talk about these same themes year after year. And this week, the theme is hope. And, and we have a story of a man who could be in a Christmas movie. You know, he's not a bad person. He's a very responsible adult, in fact, blameless even. But somewhere along the way, he's given up in this belief in, in magical hope. He, he's given up this belief in the unexpected. He's come to only rely the, upon those things that he can't expect. And so when something truly miraculous happens in his life, he doesn't even know how to receive it. And he's, his is a journey towards returning to that, that kind of childlike wonder and returning to that God-sized hope that is bigger than we can even imagine. 
this week, let's begin our, our journey through this season of Lent, this series that we've called Sensing the Season, where we're going to be grounding ourselves in these stories in a different way, perhaps, than we have before, a- inviting ourselves to, to imagine what it was like to live through these stories as the characters we're talking about. And today we're talking about Zechariah. Someone who maybe you've never heard talked about in church before. Zechariah doesn't show up very much in, uh, in, in the regular cycle of scriptures that are read on Sunday mornings. Uh, at least not this part of his story. But his is an important one for us. I think it's important for us to consider what his life was like and to walk a mile in his shoes as he learns how to hold on to hope. How to hear hope. How to speak hope for a world that is weary and frequently hopeless. To understand Zechariah's story, we need to understand two really important things about who Zechariah is. And the first is that Zechariah is a priest. And not just a priest, but he is a priest among priests. Uh, Zechariah's family can trace their lineage all the way back to Eliezer, who was the firstborn son of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the first high priest. That's the kind of family that Zechariah comes from. And not just that, his wife, Elizabeth, comes from the same lineage of Aaron as well. So this is a really priestly family. Not only that, they are what Luke calls blameless. Now, that sounds like a strong word it is. The word that Luke uses here is used very sparingly in the New Testament. And effectively, its intent is to be this, that Zechariah and Elizabeth are just a little bit less than perfect. They're not quite Jesus, but they're close, right? They are blameless amongst people. And not just that, but Zechariah is going to the temple, and not just anywhere in the temple, but this priest among priests who is blameless among all people is going into the sanctuary of the Lord. Now, why is that important? Being a member of this priestly group, Zechariah would have been a member of one of 24 different priestly groups. And two times a year for a week, they would be in charge of the temple. And when it was your group's time to be in charge of the temple, you would cast lots or roll dice, basically, to decide who would get to step into the sanctuary of the Lord. And once in your lifetime, your name would come up. And you get to go into this space, this holiest of holy spaces. And yours would be the task of lighting the incense. Effectively signaling to the entire temple that God's presence is there. You got to bring God's spirit alive for those who'd gathered for worship. That was your job. Just once, once in a lifetime, this was your task. Today is Zechariah's day. So this priest among priests, blameless amongst all people, having a a once-in-a-lifetime religious experience, he goes into this space. And what does he find? He finds the messenger of God, the angel Gabriel. And if you're listening to this story for the very first time 2,000 years ago, you're going, yes, of course he does. Who else would find the messenger of God in this holy space? He's in the holiest place on earth. He's a priest among priests. He's blameless. Of course this is the way the story would go. How totally expected. Except not for Zechariah. How does he respond? First out of fear. Angel tells him, be not afraid. And then out of confusion, what's going on here, really? And finally, out of skeptic, skeptic cynicism, perhaps, as he says, surely this news is meant for somebody else. I, I can't believe that this could be happening. You know, it's easy for us to maybe 
throw a stone at Zechariah and say, how could you not expect this to happen? Everything is lining up. This is exactly the way the story should go. But then I think about myself, and I think I can understand Zechariah's position. Can you? I mean, how often, really, do we expect our religious practices to bring about a religious experience? I'm really good at checking boxes and doing tasks like Zechariah. I'm not blameless, maybe like he is, but I lead a pretty good life. What about you? And yet when I come into holy spaces, when I go to God in prayer, when I open up my scriptures, am I really expecting something to happen or am I just checking off another box, performing another task? Would I expect to see the angel Gabriel in this space this morning? Or would I react kind of like Zechariah? As someone who over time has grown responsible, maybe a little bit thick-skinned, resistant to the idea that something truly miraculous could take place in my faith. How often do we expect our religious practices to bring about religious experience? And so I share this as a question for us as we begin this Advent season. What do we expect in these next four weeks? What do we expect in this time that comes around year after year, like clockwork, and sure, this year's a little bit different, but what do we expect from this practice? What do we expect from this season? Do we expect to meet God? Do we expect the unexpected? Or do we expect to go through the motions once again? And if your answer is that, I, I don't mean to bring this up to shame us. In fact, I, I felt convicted this week. Rather, I'd ask us to pull back for a second and to consider why. Why? What is it that has led me to be so tough and resistant to the idea that something really cool and powerful could actually happen? Can I open myself up to that childlike wonder once again of the Advent season to receive that hope and that peace and that love and that joy in a new and profound way? Okay, let's keep going. The other thing we need to know about Zechariah to understand him and his story well is to understand not just the life that he lived in the temple and with the priestly group, but also the life that he lived at home with his wife, Elizabeth. See, the line is really brief, and it handles it kind of dryly. It says, they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. If you're a devout Jew listening to this story, you are making the connections. You, you have heard this story before in the Hebrew Bible. You remember Abraham and Sarah. You remember Isaac and Rebekah and Jacob and Rachel and Manoah and his wife and Elkanah and Hannah and the list goes on. You remember these stories. You can guess how this story might end. But even though this line is brief and there's not a lot of emotional weight behind it, if you've walked through or lived through infertility, if you love someone who has, you know the kind of deep and so frequently unresolved pain that lies in that one short statement, the kind of pain that Zechariah would be holding. Before Reagan and I had Andy, and then again before we had Jude, we experienced infertility for a couple of years each time. You know, I've seen Reagan's eyes as she received that no month after month after month. I've seen her frustration with her own body while other friends and family got to announce their second or even third pregnancy and she had to put on a brave face and be excited for them. 
I remember the nights that we wondered aloud where God was and how God was going to meet us in that place of deep anger. I remember the prayers for peace that seemed so out of reach. I remember the cruel and false hope that came in the form of a chemical pregnancy, only to find out days later it was a no all over again. I know some of Zechariah's story, and I share this for a couple of reasons. First, because I know that infertility is the best-kept secret in the room. I know that when we were walking through this, we discovered more people than we knew who had a similar story. And as pastors, Reagan and I try to be vulnerable and honest about this part of our story because we know it's a chapter that's not just shared in many places in Scripture, but it's shared throughout stories in our congregations and in our community and in our world. So we want other people to know, we want you to know that you're not alone. I share this also because I know that not every story ends the same way. I've heard this passage preached without the acknowledgement that not every story gets the kind of ending that Zechariah and Elizabeth get, or that Reagan and I received. I've sat with too many couples holding too many tears because they never got the yes that they were praying for, hoping for, and I want you to know that I see you too. I see you and I'm sorry. I also share this because I understand why Zechariah, this blameless, this priest among priests, this holy man who was so righteous, who got so many things right, could still have responded in the disbelief and even skepticism or cynicism that he does. Because when you've held the kind of pain and anger that Zechariah undoubtedly has, when, when holding your partner as she cries becomes a monthly ritual, and then an angel of the Lord asks you to hold on to hope instead, what would be your response? You don't trust this kind of hope because you've learned to live without it for so very long. Zechariah is probably thinking, I'm doing fine. I've got myself buttoned up. I'm responsible. I'm righteous. My life is okay. Please, please don't ask me to invite this back into my life. Hope? You want me to ask something as foolish as hope back into my life? I think I understand where Zechariah is coming from. Because when our lives are marked by disappointment, holding on to hope can feel like a fool's errand. When our lives are marked by disappointment, holding on to hope can feel like a fool's errand. Do you know what I'm talking about? I want to say that there's a difference between placing our hope in a false hope versus opening ourselves up to a divine hope when the inner skeptic can say that it is foolish. I'm not advocating that we shift to magical thinking or placing our, our trust in false hope, but rather opening ourselves up to a divine hope. Even the skeptical side of us says, is this really foolish? I can't tell you which is which. I can't tell you where your hope should be, should be grounded this morning. I can't tell you precisely what that hope sounds like, but I can tell you that the Spirit can help you do that work. I've been in plenty of places in my life where the story didn't go the way that I wanted to. Think about when my cousin Christy and Jeff, who were like siblings to me growing up, mile away down the road, every weekend I spent at their house, and then in the seventh grade, they moved two states away. And I'd pray, and I'd pray, and I'd pray. Please, God, bring them back. Bring my family back to me. And it never happened. And even in the seventh grade, I knew that that was likely not going to be the case. So I'm not asking us to cling to false hope. 
but I am asking us to draw near to a spirit, a spirit who can guide our attention away from specific hoped-for outcomes that may or may not come to pass, and leaning more, trusting more in a hope that says regardless the outcome, God's redeeming love lives on. Because Zechariah's hope is not grounded simply in this outcome. In fact, his hope is so much broader and bigger than that. The hope of Advent is so much broader and bigger than one singular outcome. To understand that, we have to know the rest of Zechariah's story. So the angel Gabriel tells Zechariah that he will be speechless until the time that his son arrives. So place yourself in Zechariah's shoes for a moment. Imagine going through those weeks, those months, without being able to say a single word. Imagine leaving that temple. You never lit the incense. Folks know you've been in there way too long. They're wondering, what in the heck happened in the temple, Zechariah? You can't say a word. What are you going to do, mime for them that the angel Gabriel showed up and gave you this news? And then you go home, and, and you're going to be with Elizabeth for months on end, and you can't say a word. I imagine that might have been nice for Elizabeth. Hey, honey, I'm going to paint the nursery bright canary yellow. That good with you? Okay, great. You know. And then the birth. I imagine Zechariah standing by Elizabeth during the birth, going through that intense labor, all that pain, unable to offer any words of encouragement, praying that his presence and his touch could simply be enough. And then his son is born, and still he can't say a word. No shouts of rejoice, no songs of praise, just silence as he listens to this cry that he'd been waiting for for so long. And then finally on the eighth day, on the eighth day, Elizabeth and Zechariah, they take their son to be circumcised and named as was their custom. So, of course, when Elizabeth tries to tell the men gathered there that the boy's name is supposed to be John, they all shush her up, sort of pat her on the head and dismiss her. What? Elizabeth, you're mistaken. There's no men in your family named John. That can't possibly be it. Zechariah, would you tell her what the name is? Surely you want to name him Zechariah Jr., right? Can you imagine Zechariah's face growing red? beat bright red in that moment, watching these temple priests treat his wife, his, his blameless wife, like she is a confused toddler. And so he grabs a tablet, it says, and he takes a, 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 he takes a, a, a marker to, to write on this, not a marker, he takes a stone pick or something, I don't know, and he writes on this tablet in all caps and he underlines it, his name is John. And right then, his voice comes back. And he begins to do what he was unable to do in that holy space in the temple with, with the angel Gabriel so many months ago. He begins to praise God. But he's not just praising God for granting him a child. He's not just praising God for this specific outcome. He's praising God for what is about to come to all of God's people. Because Zechariah knows that this moment and this child is so much bigger than him and his family. He's not getting rewarded for good behavior. God is up to something much bigger than this and better than this. And Zechariah simply gets to have a front row seat. His name is John, he says. It's not just Zechariah naming his son. This is bigger than a name. He's naming his hope. He's naming what his hope is built upon. It's not a hope built upon his own righteousness or receiving what he wants because he's so good. It's a hope built upon God's grace, and not just God's grace for him, but the grace that will be received by all peoples through his son named John. 
because John means God is gracious. This John, whose little baby cousin Jesus, will bring hope to the world and grace to the world in a powerful new way. Zechariah does not root his hope, does not ground his hope in a specific set of outcomes. Even after he received this son that he undoubtedly prayed for time and time again, he doesn't define his hope by God's ability to live up to his own personal righteous standards. Instead, he roots and grounds his hope in God's grace and God's grace alone. Like Zechariah, our hope, our advent, really big hope is grounded in the redemptive grace of God, that grace of God that is always at work in the darkest of days, in the lowest of valleys, that grace of God that never lets those moments have the final word, that redemptive grace of God is where we ground our hope. And so maybe it doesn't turn out the way that we had hoped. Maybe our cousins don't move back home. Maybe our path forward has detours and reroutes that we had not exactly planned for. Maybe there are more no's where we wish there were more yeses. But our hope can remain. Our hope in God's redemptive love can remain because God's grace is still and always at work. Foolish as it may seem to believe in something good could still spring forth. And so as a people journeying through Advent, what do we do with this good news? What do we do with the example of Zechariah? I believe Zechariah would ask us a couple of simple questions this morning. Can we listen for the hope that God is speaking into our lives? Can we name that hope for others to hear? listen for the hope that God is speaking into our lives and can we name that hope so that others might hear my friends are yours the ears that need to hear the hope of God for a weary world is yours the mouth that God is calling to proclaim are you willing to feel foolish because you hold on to divine hope a hope not rooted in specific outcomes but rather rooted and grounded in the always redemptive grace of God. Amen.